Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on whose unceded land we are meeting today. The Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respect to their continued fight for sovereignty and self-determination and acknowledge that as settlers we have and continue to benefit from the theft of their land, culture and lives. I acknowledge that treaty talks in the state of Victoria in Australia have not begun and pay my respect to elders past and any in the room here with us today. Thank you. I'm a feminist, but the other day when my partner and I went out for breakfast, hers arrived and there was just a a tiny portion of avocado. She ordered a side of avocado and we both agreed that it wasn't enough. And I said, you should, yeah, you should totally say something. Go on, take it back. You should say something. And she did and they agreed that it was tiny and they gave us some more. Um, But if... If it was me that got the avocado, I wouldn't have said anything. <laughs> I, would have, I would have eaten them and then given them a tip. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but while here in Melbourne... Yeah. <laughs> I am currently sharing a flat uh, with amazing protest singer Grace Petrie, who is touring with us, uh, with the Guilty Feminist. You'll be seeing her later this evening. And uh, today, Grace said she was going to go to the beach, and I said I was going to stay home and work on a script, feminist script that I was working on. And I was working on it. I absolutely was working on it. And I think that needs to be key here. I was. But then, you know, when you take a break... And to get a coffee, you think, I'll just check my phone, which was in the other room, which I have to leave it in another room, or then no work will be done. So I'll just see if there's any messages while the kettle's boiling. Like, literally an hour later, I'm sitting there with my second cup of coffee in an Instagram hole. And when I heard Grace coming in, I was like, oh, shit, I'm meant to be working, and threw the phone down and picked my laptop up and was like, working. And I was like, why am I doing that? She's not my mom or my boss. But it just looked, I just felt like I'm a bad feminist, I'm meant to be writing a script, and she's going to come in on my phone. Grace, I didn't tell you this, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Did you suspect that I had done that? Could have gotten away with it, yeah. I'm a feminist, but when I was out walking my dog on a shared pathway this morning, I heard a bicycle ding behind me. Um, so I stood to the side and the man on the bike kept dinging and saying, yep, behind, behind, behind. 
And then as you rode past, you went, thanks, mate. And then went, oh, sorry, lady. <laughs> and what I said next was not very ladylike. <laughs> what did you say? I'll tell you later. Okay. I'm a feminist, but... Everyone on the internet and so many of my friends seem to be so massively into Timothy Chalamet. Oh, yeah. And one of my friends... <laughs> one of my friends said the other day, isn't he just the most shaggable man in the whole of the world at the moment? And I was like, I honestly look at him and feel I should breastfeed him. <laughs> I, in a, um, is that wrong? I, I wasn't well, sure if it was a feminist feeling or an anti-feminist feeling. It felt like both at the same time. Yeah. But if, Timothy, if you're listening, and I'm sure you do listen to this show, I mean, I know, I'm, I'm not that many degrees of separation away from Timothy Chalamet. I know some people involved in Little Women, and, and I'm sure that they probably said... I think you've got probably the most connections in this room. To Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Someone else might be his brother or something. Oh. I mean, I'm not actually lactating at the moment, and nor have I ever lactated. Okay. But I feel there's something about little Timothy. I think it'd bring it on. Mm. You well, do maybe. one. You okay. do one. No. I'm a feminist, but in the last I'm a feminist, I made you all believe that I stood up for myself, but in reality, I didn't say anything to the man on the oh! Why am I high-fiving that? It's not right. <laughs> Is this... Did you have a spree d'escalier? I could, no, I didn't even... I was just... We can be mates. <laughs> like, why, why did he have to go, oh, sorry, mate, sorry, oh, sorry, lady? Like, why can't, why can't... I can be your mate. You're my mate, Geraldine. Thanks, mate. You're my mate. That's all I've got. Um, I'm a feminist, but... Recently, someone asked me to sign a copy of Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own because they didn't have my book with them. <laughs> so I just signed, Dear Kate, I'm a feminist, but I didn't write this book <laughs> and I am going to sign it. <laughs> Live from the Thornbury Theatre in Melbourne, the sponsor there. This is the Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis White, this is Geraldine Hickey, and tonight we're talking about satire. Sup, fuckers. <laughs> Hello, Deborah. a glass of wine there? Yeah, I bought a glass of wine. Just one. Did you bring one for me? No. No, 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 no. It's fine. No, no, no. I'm fine. I'm actually fine. Some comedians like a drink. I mean, famously. But uh, some comedians like to drink before the show. But, and it genuinely does work for them. It relaxes them a bit. Um, but I think it's my job to be a little bit faster than the audience... So it's ideal if you've had one and I haven't. 
if I'm going to have one, you have to have two. So as long as everyone's down for a two-drink minimum. Well, oh, they're fine with it. Yeah. Right, OK, I'll have so, a sip. Then. Yeah, you have... We'll share it, no problem. If it's too late to offer, I've yeah. already taken it. No, I'm sorry, that was a bit colonial, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> shall we share Shall yeah. we share it? Yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I am aware with this accent, I can't get away with my... But we have to remember I was raised on the Gold Coast and then we'll all relax. Yes. About me just stealing your wine. You can have that wine. No. I don't... I don't no, I would feel wrong. Just pay me for it. <laughs> I'm going to drive. Anyone need a lift home, I'll give them a lift home. You're a natural leader, Geraldine. But I'll put it... I don't know if I am. I think a leader is someone that can walk confidently and quickly downstairs. And <laughs> that's something that I can't what, do. in a crisis? Yeah. Or just... Just in general in as morning. well. Got lots of people caught up behind me at train stations. And... Are you one of those people at the station that doesn't have their card ready to bip on the machine and then everyone's waiting behind? Yeah, that too. See? <laughs> Not a leader. You're Mikey. You're Mikey card. Do you remember last time we talked about the Mikey? I did, but now mm. I don't need a Mikey card. <gasps> Why? Because you can get it on your phone. You're welcome, everybody. I, I made that happen. Um, I've just, it's like an app on your phone. And so I just tap my phone. So and you've then, got a Mikey app now? Yeah. It's the same as like having your credit card on your phone, like that PayWave thing. Mm. And then so I just tap it. And then when it gets to, I've got it set up so when it goes below 10 bucks, tops it back up again. Does it Don't ever, have to think about it. Does it ever worry you, though, that I often think that the only thing George Orwell didn't see coming is that we would queue up for the cameras and we would have ourselves tracked every... So I'm walking around with that and I say, oh, I've just got onto the train, I've just gone off the train, I've just spent £10 on heroin, I've mm. just, you know, I'm telling the government where I am. And listen, okay, right now, that's one thing. Yeah. But we do seem to be drifting right at a rate of not... We're caught in a rip, a right-wing rip, and we're being dragged right. And you know, Britain's the same way, America's the same way. You know, parts of Canada are now going the same way. I mean, how many of us are going to be able to fit on Jacinda Ardern's paradise? Yeah. That's my question. Because, you know, I just worry that we're letting ourselves in for when the fascists inevitably don't, not inevitably take over, fight the fight. But (laughs) definitely have a go. Have a go, gang. Have a go at fighting the fight. I mean, that's what we're doing here, right? Definitely having a go at fighting that fight. But say we lose it. <laughs> I mean, I'll be arrested as but an agitator this, immediately. Um, That's like, so I was getting to the fight will be easier with my app. <laughs> That's what they want you to think. They want yeah. you to think, oh well, we can organise the resistance with that, but then they can read everything we're doing on the resistance. Do you know what I mean? Like in the war, they had coding. In the Second World War, it was like, oh, we can't crack the Germans' code. Now it'd just all be like Hitler going, what up, Goebbels? Where we at? And then Goebbels going, you know, new Fuhrer, who dis? And it it would all be clear. We would crack. It would be... Yeah, we're fucked. All right. Okay. (laughs) 
Are you ready for some stand-up comedy? Then please welcome to the stage the incredible Geraldine Hickey! Sup, fuckers. Um, when it comes to stand-up, I don't really do satire, but I have done it previously. So, here's one from the vault. I guess, so cast your minds back to, I don't even know what year it was, but you'll, you'll know once I start. <clears throat> this is the letter that I wrote to um, Tony Abbott. Uh, dear Tony Abbott, firstly, may I say thank you. Thank you so much. Finally, someone with some vision and ability and leadership to take over the portfolio for women. For too long, it's simply been women taking care of other women. And you know women can't take care of other women because we all know women intrinsically hate other women. <laughs> I mean, you know that firsthand being the father of three daughters. It takes a real man to take care of a real woman. Well, all women. I'm writing to you as I thought you would be the best person to seek advice from, given you are the Minister for Women's Affairs. In the past few months, I've experienced an irregular period and a painful <laughs> heavy slump. Do you recommend I lie on the floor of the shower in the fetal position, gently whimpering for 20 minutes, or taking four Panadol and getting into bed with a hot water bottle and eventually passing out from the pain? I'm also quite interested to know your experience with thrush. <laughs> I'm often told natural yogurt is a good remedy. <laughs> but that just seems messy. Also, do you find you get a lot of unwanted attention and possible fondling of your private bits because you quite clearly, you must be asking for it by constantly wearing nothing but a pair of Speedos? Okay, clearly I'm joking, but I feel it necessary to point this out because quite clearly, you're a dumb cunt. Um, the only way you can justify being the Minister of Women's Affairs is if there were no women. And even then, you would have to change the title to the Minister of Where Are All The Women? However, given your current cabinet, it's probably a justified question. <laughs> Yours sincerely, Geraldine. Uh, thank you. I've, got, I've got a response. <laughs> Dear Geraldine, thank you for your letter. It's so nice when a woman such as yourself takes time out from doing the ironing or the cooking. <laughs> or whatever household duties you're doing to sit down and put pen to paper. I'm very sorry to hear about your women problems. In regards to your irregular period, I would recommend the first option of lying on the floor of the shower. The abolishing of the carbon tax means you can lie in the fetal position for a little longer without worrying how much it would cost. The money that you save means you can buy the good natural yoghurt. And yes, it can be messy, but you'll know how to clean it up. 
I, unfortunately, do not get enough attention. I wear my speedos in the hope my wife will reach out and touch me rather than look at me with soulless eyes. I'm a very lonely man that just wants to be loved. I yearn for physical touch from another human being, even just a handshake. But when I try to do it a fancy way with all the others through the camera, one hand always ends up alone. Just like my heart. I get teased because of my big ears. Dumbo, they call me. Tony Dumbo Abbott. I wish I did have Dumbo ears so I could fly far, far away. <laughs> to a land where I had a palace and I could finally become a knight and eat all the onions I want. Your mate, Tony. Geraldine Hecky, everybody! Can you please get, get that round of applause going? Welcome to the stage, Deborah Francis White! So, I just want to talk a little bit about the landscape of satire and how it can be useful. Sometimes I wonder how much satire really does because satire and again some of our global listeners are very young so let's just sort of break down what satire is and it's really parodying power in some way poking fun at power or through exaggerating showing the flaws up in the powerful in order that other people can see that hey this power base isn't something we should take very seriously or there's flaws here i always remember the words of the incredible alternative comedian in Britain, Simon Munnery, where he says in the 80s, he and a lot of alternative comedians spent a lot of time satirizing Margaret Thatcher. And he said, we were successful in bringing down our government in the same way that the cabaret artists of Berlin were so successful in bringing down the Third Reich. But I often think, oh, is it really doing anything? But I think more and more, we're going to have to employ comedy to get people's attention but I think we might need to connect the dots a bit more than sometimes we do and I was really inspired by this Turkish comedian so regulars of the podcast will know that I am very interested in Turkey partly for it's a dire political situation also we had an amazing woman called Idil Essa on the show she was the head of Turkey Amnesty International. Mm -hmm. She kept saying to everybody, Erdogan is bringing in a police state. This is what's happening. It's going to be a police state. And everyone kept saying, don't be so negative. Don't put that energy out there. Come on, it'll never happen in Turkey. She can talk about the experience of her country going from a democracy to a police state. She saw it happen. She was arrested as an agitator because she was running a human rights organization. But if you're running Amnesty, you're paid, you go down to the office. I know all the people who, you know, lots of people who work in Amnesty International in London. They're doing a job of work they very definitely believe in, but it's a job. So to think suddenly you could be arrested specifically because you are dealing in human rights is a very scary thing. Idalessa is just a brilliant person because she makes it very, very accessible. What she does is basically then do what I think of as TripAdvisor reviews for every Turkish prison she was ever in. She basically goes, well, 
the first place we were in, the food was terrible, but they had good toilets. I don't like to squat. But then the second place we went to, the toilets were terrible, the food was terrible, and the guards were mean. I really don't have anything to say about that. It's just like a one-star experience. And then we went over here, and she got taken into this high-security prison. It was like 70,000 people, nearly all men, but she was put in what they call the VIP wing. Now, you were allowed to have close family come, but only nuclear family, and she didn't have any nuclear family. So she wasn't allowed to have people come and visit her. The only person she could have was her lawyer. And so she made her lawyer come once a week, and it was when Game of Thrones was on. She's a big Game of Thrones fan. And so she said, right, you have to come once a week, and you have to tell me blow by blow, as if I'm watching it, every single thing that happens in Game of Thrones. So it's like I'm watching it. Because she said, I might die in here, and I really don't want to die not knowing what happens in Game of Thrones. (laughs) So the lawyer would come in every week and go, we open on a dragon. Uh, And she said that the guard who had to stand with her was so pissed off because she was saving it to watch with her husband. And it was just an hour of spoilers of just, fucking old man, like, come on. Sort of trying to watch it quickly before this terrible visit. And that made it very, very accessible to me because I suddenly, a lot of times, I mean, I'm the ambassador, and a lot of times we, you know, they bring us in and they, you know, we listen to people who've got these terrible stories, but it seems very far away and very disconnected. And when Idle Essa talks, it sounds like, oh, that's what it would be like if it happened in Australia. That's what it would be like if it happened in the UK or America. Some people in this room would be in jail because they had agitated and it would be us going I really am very keen to know what happens in Handmaid's Tale does anyone know what's the new series is on I can't get it that's that would be us so because of that I asked Idol what are the things that we can do if our countries are caught in this right-wing tidal rip what can we do and she said okay there's three things you can do First of all, you have to resist. You have to resist all the time. And she said, you think going to a protest doesn't do anything. Like, sometimes you think, that was a day out for us, but what did it do? But she said, you have to remember, every government is looking out the window to see what kind of resistance they would get. Because there's more of us than there are of them. If they genuinely think you would overthrow them, then they can't push any further. And she said, that's true of any government in any direction. Every government is seeing how much can we push our own agenda, maybe beyond things people voted for, because this is what we believe in. She said it could be a government you like, but all governments are going, do you reckon we can pass this? Do you reckon we can get this through? Do you reckon we can get this through? And if it's a right-wing government, they are always looking out the window to see how much further right they can go. So you need to be visible and in their face and resisting. So she said, never think that you writing to the government doesn't work. Never think protesting doesn't work. Never think online campaigns don't work. They are looking and they are watching. But she said, the next thing she said is you have to be resilient. Because if 20,000 people come to the first march and 15,000 to the next, and by the time it's the fifth march, there's 4,000 people there, they know you're not serious. So again, it's not just about you going... It's about you recruiting, that you have to influence your circle to understand how important this is. You have to turn other people into advocates. And the third thing she said was, she said it's the thing that the guilty feminist has, and I would say other groups like us, I mean, by no means are we the only one, but it's something peculiar to the 21st century that has sprung up through podcasts and other forms of media where the artists have taken control of the means of production. So people like me, did not get any kind of mainstream platform because we weren't seen as interesting or people who could make money for the powers that be. 
And that's shifted now because they see, oh, no, lots of people are interested in this. But lots, lot, there are lots of spaces now that are absolutely homegrown, like this one, where it's just people listening and going, I'd be interested in that, I'd come to that, I'd pass that on, tell my friend about that. And she said, what those spaces have is joy. And she said, that's often what's left out. And she said, often what makes people good at resisting the government also makes them good at resisting other people. So you can get groups that are like, you're not resisting in the correct way, and you're not quite radical enough to resist in this space. Now, we absolutely, we talked about this the other night, we need radical spaces, and we need radical people, and we need radical voices, and we need radical groups who go, you're a big piece of marshmallow, fuck off. We absolutely do. Because what radical people are saying today will be normal in 20 years' time, unless we get caught in this terrible tide. I was very inspired by this Turkish comedian. His name is uh, Kem Yilmaz, and uh, he got arrested. When he got out, he did something, the most brilliant piece of satire I've ever heard. There was a song that Erdogan plays when they torture people, like a Pride in Turkey song, and he bought the rights to it. <laughs> so they can never play it again. They used to play it at their rallies, and they can't play it anymore. So he's like, I own that now. Just before we go on with the podcast, I wanted to play this short message from an amazing Guilty Feminist listener in Syria who needs your help. Here's Reem Mahmood to tell her story. So I am Reem Mahmood, a pioneer feminist activist from Syria. At the age of 21, I took the first step towards my dream by volunteering with a feminist organization to write and translate feminist articles. Through courses, books, and podcasts, I dedicated the next two years of my life to enhancing the quality of my activism. I even went as far as taking several of MIT's Open Gender Studies courses. As a result of this devoted work, I founded the first Syrian feminist platform in 2018. It became one of the most popular local platforms, reaching more than 500k people monthly with more than 70k followers on our Facebook page. Since I was 21, I have never stopped blogging on an individual basis about feminist issues on my Facebook account that now has over 9,000 followers. I also launched my YouTube channel two months ago. I mainly discuss feminism, self-development and society. So here is my situation. I got accepted at York University in Canada to study gender and women's studies. I chose this program to improve my skills in this field and to study women's situation in Syria today from an academic perspective. This will improve my work and enable me to provide deep insight for feminism in Syria and the region. This program will help me to uplift the feminist movement in Syria in terms of academic research. Having theories and academic analysis based on Syrian society after the war is a necessity. This program will help me to be part of creating it. Unfortunately, I haven't received or even applied to any scholarship from York University since I received the admission letter on 21st May and the deadline for the scholarship was on the 1st of May. So I'm not 
the kind of person who give up. I launched a crowdfunding campaign to secure money for the uni tuition fees and to be able to move to Canada. So anyone who is listening to me right now can be part of changing my life and helping me to achieve my dream to be a young feminist scholar. As a Syrian young woman who is trying to improve her situation and to pursue her dreams, everything is a way harder for me. I feel that I am always running to follow up with this fast world. I have to work harder to fill the Syrian student living in Syria gap. I also want to take a moment to say thank you to the Guilty Feminist Podcast and to the greatest Deborah for believing in me. I really need women to believe in me and to support me. I need people who are listening to me right now to feel my passion and to see my dream to write a new life story, a greater one. Despite the fact that I am a non-privileged girl who came from a lower middle class family from a third world country that suffered from war, please be part of writing a new life story for me. And thank you. With all of my love, Reem. Thank you for getting in touch, Reem. And listeners, if you can help at all, go to gofundme.com forward slash help hyphen Reem, R-W-E-M, hyphen two, hyphen study, hyphen at, hyphen York, hyphen university. Or see the link in our show notes. We really wish Reem all the best of luck. We know how difficult it must be. And as feminists, we want to rally around and empower her. And now back to the podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Our guest today is an award-winning comedian, writer and actor with an extensive background in both live and television comedy. In recent years, she has become known for her work as a co-creator of the catering show and Get Kraken. Please welcome to the stage, Kate McLennan.
take a seat. Goodness me. Thanks for asking me to come and do a gig that is six minutes from my house. Oh, they're always the best, aren't they? They're always the best. You know, it's Um, an incentive. Yes, absolutely. Is that the main reason you said yes? Yep. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Great, because um, we were looking for a stone's throw away satirist, Mm. and your name came up on Google Mm. as someone who could both satirize. Uh, how women are portrayed in the media and also walk to the gig. Mm. And there was literally, it was just you. You were the only I, one that came up. Kate McCartney does live closer. Um... <laughs> okay, that's awkward. Please don't tell her. <laughs> I did tell her that I was doing this. And she was like, oh. <laughs> you could have brought her. And I'm like, well, because we do everything together. So I was like, did you get asked? And she goes, no. I oh, no. Asked. Well, I, I don't like, know. They probably just wanted me. So. <laughs> no, that never oh. happens. But she always gets well, asked to do she, things. Jeff. She always gets asked to do acting things. And I'm the actor. She hates acting. And also, then, who got a thermomix? She gets the free things as well. <laughs> yeah, she got given a thermomix when we did an episode of the catering show about thermomixes. And the only thing I've ever been given is a Metamucil cooler bag. <laughs> Which, in fairness, should have gone to me. Because isn't that from the episode where I'm holding the Metamucil? You're right. It is, actually, in The Chemist. The Chemist in Brunswick. We just had Geraldine pulling things off a shelf and a chemist in the background and just going... (laughs) And she does it very well. I did. Do you know the um, the, uh, Metrosexual, that show that I... um, if you haven't seen it, please do. It's on nine now. Now, um, I got that role from that episode. So they had watched it and watched me pulling things off a shelf and went, "Yep, she's our lead." Uh-huh. So, Kate, just for our global listeners, can you talk a bit about Get Cracking? Because sure. it's such a funny piece of satire. And there was a clip from it that went viral uh, that I saw in the UK where you, well, you... Explain the show first. Yes, so it's called Get Kraken and it's a satirical morning show. So it hovers somewhere between the, you know, 6 till 9am breakfast show and those mid-morning breakfast show, you know, morning shows. And it's hosted by myself and Kate McCartney playing these heightened versions of ourselves. And so it kind of operates like it is a bit of lifestyle, but then it's also just like there's panels and there's you know we're cutting to the traffic reporter or the weather reporter who we have a weather reporter called Beck Jutt who called what? Beck Jutt um and Beck Jutt is there's why is that funny? There's a weather reporter I mean it is but why? Well there's a weather reporter on channel nine called Beck Judd oh who's this like stunning, I think she was, she was a model. Is she a model? She's a model. She's, she, she'll sell, she sells clothes with her body. Um, and she, she does lots of other things. But um, we decided to cast Albert Judd, Judd sorry, as, um, as Adam Briggs, the rapper. So he um, is not, he doesn't look like Beck Judd at all. 
Um, I'm talking myself into a hole here. <laughs> I'm like, is Big Judd going to sue us? Um, so anyway, so it's this morning show and it's essentially, season one was kind of like, for those of you in the audience who have seen it, it's, it started off as a show that kind of had a lot of women in a space where traditionally you didn't see um, women performing in roles that you wouldn't normally see and doing things on screen that you wouldn't normally see. Um, and that then evolved as season two went on and we sort of, um, we evolved as creators and writers and showrunners and so the brief kind of um, for the second season of the show became about putting stories and people in that space that is normally such a hostile space on Australian TV and wanting to kind of blow the lid off that a little bit more and showing people, I guess, subverting the norm of what we normally see in those situations. And the clip that went viral, was it like two men mansplaining? Yeah, the one, I think the one that you're talking about that went viral in the UK was the Cunts for Clicks, I think it was called. I think that's, uh, in fact, I know that that's what it was called, um, but I think that's the one that you're talking about. And Because um, Jennifer Saunders retweeted it, which was, you yeah. know, like this 20-year kind of dream, just something like I passed out. Um, <laughs> from a 15-year-old watching the wine episode of Absolutely Fabulous and realising that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, both <laughs> drink wine and do comedy and then years later have Jennifer Saunders share our video. So that was pretty cool. Um, but that clip essentially sort of looked at the way that programs like Sunrise and the Today Show bring in these right-wing talking heads and quite often people who are known neo-Nazis, like people with convictions <laughs> and giving them the same airtime as someone who has a university degree or not even just some 2GB succubus. Um, and so that clip was all about these three panellists that we had on. So, you know, like, yeah, there were the three guests that I can't sort of say who they are based on because... Um, the defamation laws in this country. That's right. Are <laughs> so they were based on no one. They're based on nobody. That's important. And McCartney and I, in that in that situation, we played these two kind of TV monsters, and it was sort of talking about the way that these people, like Sam Armitage and and Koshy and all of these other breakfast TV hosts, are complicit in the views that are, are mm. spouted and so we were kind of leading up with that episode I think that was like episode six and we were sort of in the second season and we were leading up to a discussion um, that we knew was coming in episode eight the final episode with Miranda um, Tapsell and Nakia Louie hosting that episode. So and this, can you just explain who they are again for our global listeners? Yes so Miranda Tapsell and Nakia Louie are two um, incredible Aboriginal actors Nakia is an incredible playwright and writer in her own right and Miranda's also a writer. She's just released her first feature film last year that she co-wrote and starred in and produced. They're two actresses that we worked with to... They appeared in the first season of the show and um, as versions of themselves, again, these heightened versions of themselves. And so we worked with them to create this final episode of the show and we kind of knew it was going to be the last episode of the show and we were watching them 
in their guest episode that they did with us in episode seven of the first series where they kind of hosted for a, a segment while we had to deal with this fictional storyline of our children having hand, foot and mouth being in the green room. And so they hosted and we were watching that in the first season and we were like, oh, they're amazing, we should close the show with them in the final episode and, and hand it over to them because it became, for us, like moving into doing the second season, it was like, well, what do we want to do with this and what do we want to say? And so when we were writing the or workshopping the second season of the show, Sunrise had done this segment where Prue McSween had made these comments in just, you know, a very light, you know, like just quick, you know, 10-minute segment about whether Aboriginal children should be removed from their families and she thought that perhaps, yes, another stolen generation needed to happen. It's horrifying, like horrifying statement. Samantha Armitage kind of just allowed that to happen in running this segment and also made some statements of her own within that segment that were completely inaccurate as well. And so that for us became this moment that we were like, this is just abhorrent and this world of morning television is abhorrent and someone needs to call these fuckers out. And so... I mean, at, at no point did they ever have anyone who was Indigenous speak on the panel. I mean, those... Did they not? They didn't have any Indigenous No, they never do, but also... I mean, that's also quite complex as well because I think that even if the space was offered, like, it's a very hostile environment as well. It's not a structure that is welcoming. So I understand that even if sometimes if people like, you know, like Q&A, for example, if people are asked to do it, I understand it's not always something that people want to do. So we thought, well, we have this opportunity with this half-hour episode that we can have Miranda and Nakia put forward their perspective of being Aboriginal women in 2019 and in the world, in Australia and in the entertainment industry. We thought about what's the best way to do that and we thought rather than us kind of inviting them in to do a guest spot, we thought, well, let's write it with them and let's have the time to write this. And so we wrote it with them over a period of like about six months, I suppose it was. And it was incredibly collaborative and it was built sort of already on an existing relationship of trust that we all had with each other and friendship as well. And they came in and, I mean, the scripts were coming into production, reading the scripts and knowing the monologues at the end. If you've seen the episode, you are talking before about Julia Gillard getting to... Her speech that she made was the number one in the memorable TV moments. So Miranda and Nakia's monologue at the end of Get Crackin' was number eight on that list, which was pretty amazing. (laughs) And it was extraordinary. Like, the script was there, we'd worked on it, and then when we came in to shoot it at the ABC, we shot it over a few days. We shot the monologue, though, in... um, We did three takes of it and the first take was 
something that I will never forget. There was so much rage and so much heart and so much integrity to their performances and so controlled as well. And they, you know, and they did this long sequence for those of you who've seen it and I'll explain a little bit for the listeners, but it's an eight-minute sequence that is done in one take and shot on multicam where they both kind of get to the end of their tether with the situation that they've been put in and they start to rage. And so Miranda starts, she makes this incredibly impassioned monologue and then starts tearing the set up. And as she's doing that, Nakia then starts ripping off this white artifice that she's been forced to wear throughout the show and starts making this incredibly impassioned plea for how we can all exist together moving forward and then as she's breaking down with tears Miranda runs through the back of the shot holding an urn (laughs) that has the ashes (laughs) and there's a date inscribed on it and it's the date that episode of Sunrise went to air and it's the death of Australian television and she carries this urn through the back of the shot just going this is for my people and smashes it through the window. And the timing of it's just delightful. Um, They're incredible performances and they're incredible um, monologues that both of them performed, but they're really funny as Mm. well. Like, it's gut-wrenching and it's so powerful, but Nakia is so funny in it as well. And that is part of what makes it powerful is it's really compelling to watch. It's funny. We can take it. I think more audiences can take it if there's something funny about it. And, again, it's a joyful resistance. Yeah, it was the, the amount of comments that we've had through it. Like, I, you know, have people come up to me all the time and, you know, talk about that episode. And it's interesting, though, like, McCartney and I have done all sorts of things in that show. Like, in that final episode, we do a shot, a quick glimpse of my vagina as a head's coming out of it. And there's been, you know, there's episodes where there's McCartney has talked, well, actually, it was a situation that happened to McCartney, but it was me talking where I'm having like, as if my mic's on backstage talking to a doctor who's discovered that I've left a tampon in my vagina for weeks <laughs> without realising. And like we've, we've done lots of stuff that's really gross and like done scenes where all we've done is burped and like we've shanked a lot of people. But watching the response that like the shit that Nakia and Miranda have copped because of that episode, it's just like it really... Wow. Yeah, the privilege that we've had as white women to just kind of say what we want, whereas mm. the minute those two... Like, Nakia's said that she's copped some form of abuse about that episode nearly every day since it went to air 12 months ago. <laughs> like, it's just... It's extraordinary and, like, you know... Andrew Bolt has essentially had a campaign against her. The Daily Telegraph has had a campaign. If you're listening internationally, apparently that person's not popular here. Mm, No. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's a real... Like, for McCartney and I to sit back and just really understand how, um, yeah, the privilege that we've had and that Mm. it has not been extended to people within our show. Have you ever noticed that your names are McLennan and McCartney? Mm. (laughs) Just, I just, I don't know if that had passed you by. Um, but that's, someone said to me once after, because, you know, our first show was called The Catering Show and it was a cooking show. And someone said, I just never really, because it's 
because you're both called Kate. <laughs> I was like, yes, that's right. <laughs> it's, you know, it's the small things that slip by. <laughs> it, that was really fascinating, and it's really amazing what can be done under the guise of light entertainment. Light entertainment can do a lot of heavy lifting. Never forget that. And it has changed my... The fact it was number eight, it means it's changed people's minds. I mean, that's The Guardian. It's a, you know... (laughs) How about, you know... It's a a home crowd, isn't it? (laughs) It's... I still... It will have changed people's minds. It definitely will. It does work. You're not... If you're doing comedy or you're a singer-songwriter, those kind of things, you can win people over. And story wins people over. Absolutely story wins people over. There's this book that I read when I was a kid. I was reading it to my kid recently. It's, has anyone read the book about Tiddalik, the frog, and how, you know, Tiddalik is this frog, this greedy frog who drinks all of the water from the river and all of... I always think of Barnaby Joyce when I think about him, but it's, you know, drinks water from the swamp and he sucks up all the water, just sucking it all up, and, you know, all of the animals are like, we need our water back, Tiddalik, and... They're all trying to plead with Tiddalik how to get the water back. And in the end, um, one of the animals makes Tiddalik laugh and Tiddalik does a big laugh and all the water comes out. And I'm like, when I was reading that to my kid, I'm like, yeah, that's... We're the ones who are trying to make Tiddalik laugh, you know, so that the Murray-Darling Basin can fill up again. No, it's like, we're just... But it's... But that's kind of... I feel like... I know that there's some people... I remember doing a, a, a panel with someone who is an activist and a feminist and she was really kind of quite pissed off with the comedians who were on the panel who's like, you get to be funny and people get to like you whereas I just, you know, cop shit from people. And it was like, yeah, but, you know, this is the thing that we're good at and we could just be making jokes about, you know, oh, my... Harpy doesn't wipe down the bench or some shit like that. But we're kind of going, okay, well, let's, you know, let's use our power for good. And um, I am interested in that content about your husband not wiping down <laughs> counters, though. His, anyway, it's easier to do it myself. Um, <laughs> but, I'm a feminist, but, um, you know, and just even on Twitter, like, I know, you know, I get, I'm so full of rage. And I'm so angry and I have been so angry since I was about 13, and, like, I'm probably seven, actually, just very angry. And I always know that, like, anything that I write on Twitter that's angry, if I can make it angry and funny, it does so much better than, you know, anything that I write that's just plain angry. And anything that I say to my dad who drives me crazy works, you know, I can get the message across if I'm being funny with him. Mm. And so, you know, so as we go along, it's like, okay, this is what we feel, this is the rage, this is why we're bringing up, because we're so angry about this. Now, how do we make it funny? That's McCartney's and my job. It's like, how do we make it funny? So our next show is about climate change and it's set in Antarctica and it's about a penguin colony completely dying. Um, Lol. But, God, it's funny. Uh, It's so funny. And if you're thinking, oh, God, I'm not a funny person, it doesn't have to be... We're talking about satire, but there's lots of other tools. Comedy may not be your bag. But there may be other forms of persuasion. What are you good at? When have you had the best result of your life? When have you been convinced? And start to just break it down and get good at those processes. I wrote a book called The Guilty Feminist. And um, <laughs> in it, when I first mentioned it, and uh, Sunday Times bestseller. But don't go on about it. It's embarrassing. Um, but in, there's a chapter in that where I break down some of the things that I've done about how I wrote them. So sort of when I did a speech about being angry about Brexit or a satirical speech about Trump or whatever, I looked at how you could find your voice. I think the chapter's about finding your voice. 
So check that out if you're looking for inspiration and want to buy my book from a bookshop that pays its tax. Can I make another book recommendation? Yes. This is just nepotism here. McCartney's girlfriend, Sally Rugg, has written a great book called How Powerful We Are. And Sally sort of headed up the Get Up campaign for marriage equality. And it's this wonderful book about activism that I feel like you could read at any level. And it's put a real fire in my belly and it's really explained... Like, there's the people that you have a chance of pulling over to your side. It's like, concentrate on those people. And so, anyway, it's a great book. And if you are interested, check that grab out. It. Mm. <laughs> Dr. Claire Wright is an award winning historian, author, broadcaster, and public commentator. Her best selling second book, You Daughters of Freedom, uh, followed the 2013 Stella Prize winning The Forgotten Rebels of Eureka. Christine Zwicka, who's been on our show before, is a Melbourne-based columnist and consultant. Uh, you will remember her from our episode on Weinstein culture. Please welcome to the stage Dr. Claire Wright and Christine Zwicka. I'm Professor Claire Wright, and I'm going to up that doctor to oh, professor because I've doctor here. I know I've been promoted. <laughs> Sorry. And I think. Women should crow about their achievements, not mm, play them down. Absolutely. So I'm, cl I'm claiming that, Professor. And so I'm a Professor of History at La Trobe University, not far from where we are recording this episode tonight, and also a broadcaster. Um, I do my own podcast called Archive Fever, which is peak nerd, people. It is, it is about a love of research and archives. And Christine Zwicker. My name's Christina Zivica and I've, I... I've, Have I been saying your name wrongly all these years? Like, well, it's close enough. It's good. <laughs> Nobody gets it right. I'm quite... I'm like a good friend of Christina. She was at my wedding. <laughs> say, say your name again. Christina Zivica. It's nothing like what I've ever said. <laughs> I know you're Christina, but Zivica... I always thought it was... We'll work on it. Yeah, okay. okay. You okay. say your name and I'm sure you've got the pronunciation right. <laughs> but just based on years of using it. Yes, I am a good friend of Deb. She likes to call me a chartered feminist. So I started out as a journalist many moons ago. I used to work at Ms. Magazine back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and magazines were still in print. I've um, done a lot of campaigns. I worked at the Human Rights Commission in the UK for seven years, banging on about the gender pay gap, amongst other things. And now here in Australia, I use my expertise to comment on gender equality and feminism. And I write a regular column for The Age, for Women's Agenda. Um, occasionally, I can be found in The Guardian and the ABC. Great. So, so this, is a, this campaign you're doing is called The Bronze Ceiling. Now, we did this in the UK, and it was basically about the fact that only 7% of statues commemorating people with achievements were of women. And you might think, oh, who cares about old statues in the park? But it's just subconsciously putting into the mind of women and girls, especially girls, that women haven't achieved anything. Of those 7% of statues, it was something that most of them were of either Queen Victoria and a lot of the rest of them were naked, nameless women we didn't know <laughs> that were just sort of, you know... Nymphs. Yeah, nymphs, nymphs by a fountain. Nymphs with their tits out by a fountain. And listen, not to slut-shane any nymphs. That's <laughs> great, great news by all means. Frolic in that fountain. But... No so yeah. what's the situation in Australia? Are you higher than 7%? 
Unfortunately, we're much lower than 7%. So the figure in Australia at the moment is that about 3% of statues and monuments are to women. In Melbourne, we're doing slightly better, uh, but not really, um, because the statistic is 11% of statues and monuments in Melbourne are of non-white men. So, did that make sense? Yeah. Yes. So, in Australia, there are more statues of animals than there are of women presently. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Pack up, go of home. Of animals? Of animals. You know, Farlap and... and Farlap? And, and the, and Farlap's got a statue. And, Farlap! And, and the big prawn. And, <laughs> you can't count the big prawn. You cannot count the big prawn. That's not a statue. We, we haven't even started on the fruit and vegetables yet. No, we talked about this in Brisbane, I think, that just, yeah, it's a, it's a bizarre thing. Uh, it is. But bizarre and also appalling. And so this is what Christine and I are doing as we're getting together. We've started a campaign called A Monument of One's Own. And we are aiming to smash the bronze ceiling. And we're looking to... Uh, for, it's a campaign for statue equality, basically. So that makes a nice, a nice hashtag. And so we're aiming to set the bar a little bit higher than 3%. And it's really interesting, the fact that, you know, you brought up Captain Cook. And Captain Cook, um, we're about to celebrate the 200th anniversary of that blah, blah, you know. And... There is um, going to be a if new If you're listening statue. globally, this is about colonisation and invasion yeah. and the slaughter of Indigenous people, which is not something to be celebrated and led to, to erect a load of statues about. However, our government is going to spend $50 million on the commemoration of Cook's visit to Australia, <laughs> including a new statue of Cook that to add to the already 200 plus statues of Captain what? Cook that already exist in We've Australia. already got 200 plus statues and they're now spending millions on more statues. On more statues. Uh, funnily enough, in the Prime Minister's electorate, the new statue is going to be. So, is there a colour-coded spreadsheet that determines yeah, that? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Just checking. Right next to the, the shooting range. Yes. yes. So like how and the women's changing rooms. So how can we help you with this bronze ceiling campaign and to fight back against ever more statues of a man who came in and decimated First Nation Australians? So we're going to be kicking off this campaign next month, which is National Women's History Month in March. And we're going to be starting the campaign with Operation Zelda to build our first statue. And we were going to be looking at a fundraising campaign and I'll let Christine tell you why Zelda DiPrano is going to be the first candidate for a statue here in Melbourne. Happy? Yeah. So Zelda DiPrano, who I hope many of you, but some of you might not know, exactly 50 years ago, she chained herself to the Melbourne Commonwealth Building to protest unequal pay. She was a meatpacker. She was part of the Meatpackers Union, and they were adjudicating an equal pay case because at that time, it was still perfectly legal to pay men and women different rates and have men's rates and women's rates. So she chained herself to Melbourne Commonwealth Building, and they cut her loose, and 10 days later, she was back with friends. And that's... yes. That year, 50 years ago, is the same year that the principle of equal pay for equal work was established in Australian law. Why Zelda? Good question. We want to commemorate and honour her achievements and obviously the role that she played in the battle for equal pay. But 
50 years on, we still have a 14% gender pay gap in this country. And the Workplace Gender Equality Agency predicts that at the current rate of change, it will be another 50 years before we have equal pay. And I'm not quite sure. You've had the honor of meeting Zelda. Um, Zelda, sadly, uh, passed away two years ago. Two she years was ago, 90 years old. Um, a year before the 50th anniversary of her historic protest. I don't think that she was sort of standing there in the chains going, oh, yeah, you know hope we get equal pay in 100 years. I think she had a, a stronger sense of urgency. And I hope that by highlighting Zelda's protest, we will tap into that kind of fiery, righteous energy. I think women should still be mad about the gender pay gap. They should be mad about the slow pace of change. And for me, and I've been campaigning on the gender pay gap, I am... I should have a gender pay gap for your podcast because I'm as big a nerd about it as um, Claire is about archives. It's, if there, I know, it's exciting, archives and gender pay gap data. But if there's a beautiful thing about the gender pay gap as a figure is that it captures the myriad of injustices that women experience in the workplace. So if we address the gender pay gap, if we look at things like the cost of childcare, if we look at the undervaluing of women's work, if we look at the lack of flexibility, if we look at pregnancy discrimination, one in two women experience pregnancy discrimination, if we look at the gender pay gap and take action on it, we will be looking at a lot of things that affect women and we will make real change. Wonderful. And how, how can we get involved? What's, is there social media? Is there a website? What can we do? So we have a website. Um, we launch next month. And so you're the first to find out about it. Thank you for the warm welcome. And I think uh, so www, a monument of owns one's a, a own. A monument of one's own. A it, monument it, of one's own. Do yes. you have any Twitter? Is there anything that we can do to get behind it? There will be. Not yet. But uh, if you're listening to this episode in a couple of months' time, you definitely will be able to go on. There will be an Instagram page, there will be Twitter, there will be the website. But it's also an interactive campaign. Not only are we looking to raise money for this first statue, but we are also have a page where we ask you to nominate a woman or a gender-diverse person who you think is inspirational, who has affected our city, our civic life, our community life, and you would like to see honoured with a monument of her own as well. Because, right. you know, you talked before about inclusive spaces mm -hmm. um, and places where women feel comfortable. And our cities are not designed for or by women. And one of the ways that we can see that is that we don't see ourselves reflected mm -hmm. in the monuments and the naming of places around us. And, and all of those things suggest belonging and they suggest identity and they suggest that we belong in this place as well as honouring the achievements and the ambitions and the ideas of those women. So it's about remembering, as Christine said, the unfinished business of the campaigns and the resistance that those women started. And this, what is joyful resistance as well? When I interviewed Zelda about chaining herself to the Commonwealth Building, she talked about it as being tremendous fun. And funnily enough, you know, my, my last book was about the suffrage movement and all those suffrage campaigners and suffragettes in England and the Australians who came before them talked about that time in their lives as being the most passionate and fun times because mm -hmm. they were out there 
working with other women towards change. And they talk about it almost as like soldiers often talk about their times in the war. Mm. You know, they were the worst of times, but also the best yeah. of times. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of women who were traumatised and criminalised in terrible ways as well, just to sort of, you know, but yes, of course, any, you know, movement where we come together has thrilling and exciting moments as well. Uh, so get behind it, a monument of one's own, get involved, uh, follow all of these guys. Kate and Geraldine, do you have anything else to plug? Anything you'd like us to come to? Yeah, just a couple of things. Um, <laughs> I'll be quick. I've got um, um, pins that I'm going to sell. Or if you don't have any money, just donate it. But it's um, from my last year's show where I did a joke about um, the marriage equality survey. And it's so the pin has the dates of when that postal survey was and then the words, Les Faggot. <laughs> Just a bit of satire there. Um, uh, you can buy those in the foyer from you. Yeah, you can, please have one. Hey, can we buy those in the foyer from you? Yeah, you can buy them from. I've just got a tin, um, an empty roses chocolate tin full of them. <laughs> I don't know how to sell them any other way other than in person. Um, no, it's, yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, so just and so if you don't have cash, just make a direct donation to um, your own choice of a like minus eighteen. I like or a switchboard or something like that. A youth-based one is the ones that I like because they were the ones that were targeted a lot during that campaign and they didn't have a, a right to vote. So I'd like to support them, but give me cash as well. Um, Great, <laughs> if you've got it, whatever and. Um, uh, Geraldine, yeah, I'm just show. demonstrating what a, what a, a, a nice fashion item yeah. they make here attached to my lapel. Yeah, it looks pretty hip. looks <laughs> nice. Um, um, oh, yeah, and I've got my new show that you can buy tickets for now. Um, what a surprise. And um, please watch Metro Sexual on Nine now so I can get another acting job. That'd be great. Thanks. Thank that's it. Kate? Um, you can listen to McCartney and I have started a terrible podcast that is not a patch on this um, called Only Wrong Answers. But Nakia and Miranda, who I was talking about a lot, also have a podcast called Pretty for an Aboriginal, which is fantastic. Listen to that. And um, Nakia's had written the latest season of Black Comedy, which is on there now. Miranda's film Top End Wedding is on iTunes. Watch it. It's great. Great. Get, get cracking. Put your hands together and make incredible woohooing noises for the wonderful Grace Petrie! G'day Melbourne, how you going? I sound like such a fucking tourist when I say that. But I'm enjoying saying it. How are you going? We say, how are you doing? You say, how are you going? You're not impressed. Um, uh, so I'm just going to sing you some songs. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Very optimistic about the set. That's what we like to see. Um, uh, so actually, I'm, um, I'm actually a, a, a protest singer. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I love when... <laughs> 
I love when that is met with a deathly silence. That's great. No, um, I, actually, uh, specifically, I'm, I'm a socialist, feminist, lesbian, left-wing protest singer. Um, uh, thank you very much. Um, and I have been doing that uh, for about 10 years. I've been singing songs about social justice um, with the aim of sort of trying to make the world a better place. Um, and, uh, and, and I think we can all agree that I've been fucking unsuccessful so far, haven't I, in that regard? Goodness me. <laughs> So, um, I'll tell you this story very, very briefly. Um, in the, uh, in the, the house that I lived in um, before I moved house last year, um, I lived next door to uh, a very interesting uh, 81-year-old man at the time that I met him. He was 81. Um, and uh, the day that I moved into the, to the house, um, I met him on the street outside. And I was complimenting his garden. And he said, oh, come in, come and see the house. And uh, I went into his house, and from the moment that I entered his house, he started talking, and he didn't stop for an hour. <laughs> uh, and the whole time that he was talking, he was, uh, he was telling me all about the man that he'd lived with in that house for years and years and years, uh, who had died 20 years before. And it was so obvious to me that he, they'd just been housemates, they'd just lived together platonically. Um, but it was so obvious to me from the way that he was talking about this man that he had been in love with him, right? Uh, and it really got me thinking about how differently my life would have gone um, if I had been born in a different time, basically, or even just been born to different people. Um, and, uh, and, you know, this house is kind of full of this deceased man's kind of... All, all of his possessions were still up everywhere, and the way he was talking about it was so beautiful, and, uh, and I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So I felt like it, the, the, the kind of unspoken nature of that relationship was like pouring out of the walls. Um, and I went home and I wrote this song, um, and it's called This House. This house is like a cemetery Behind the labors of his time, the products of his mind, I keep them all in line. All the things he left behind. This house is like a prison cell. Twenty years straight down the well, and all I've got is time. Time on time on time Sat here with an idle mind And questions that it finds About the ways that he was mine And it's not shame It's just something I can't name This house is like a mockery 
Empty chairs and crockery And it's handsomer than most But nobody gets close Empty glasses and on to toast But he was born to host All I entertain is ghosts is like his legacy All the things he meant to me And I try to find a way To keep the thought at bay That if we had one more day Oh I don't know what I'd say Yeah hell alone knows what I'd say Cause it's not shame it's just something I can't name It's not love Oh, this thing I'm dying of It's his roses in the garden It's his pictures on the wall If this house was made for talking It would say It would say nothing at all Mind. Oh, I keep them all in line All the things he left behind people on the internet going, oh, I was just thinking about buying some new lingerie. Can anyone recommend any? And I was think, mm. what's that about? Because <laughs> I would ask a close circle of friends. I recommend... I might ring you and say, where well, do I get my lingerie? Oh, <laughs> well, I recommend, um, like, are you talking top or bottom? Both! Oh, okay. Don't you want, don't you, don't you like the whole set? Nah. Uh, <laughs> Just one or the other. Yeah, I can't. It's I've got big boobs and I wear men's underwear. There is no matching. <laughs> A huge thank you to all of our amazing patrons sponsoring us at the Smash the Patriarchy level or above, and that's Valerie Ma, John Corcoy, Sarah Brown, and Sarah Boom.